You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we discuss and debate what's going on in the world of rule-based investing right now. My name is Niels Kasselblasen and I'm excited to welcome my co-host Jerry Parker and Moritz Siebert. Hey guys, how are you? Great. Great. End of the month, end of the week. So uh, something to look forward to uh, coming up very very shortly. Um, but since it is end of the month, why don't we talk a little bit about the uh, month of September to kick things uh, off. Uh, if I uh, maybe start with you, uh, Moritz, how how did you see this uh, this month? It's been a good month, uh, up a bit more than three percent actually. So uh, one of the better months this year. Um, you know, short on gilts. Actually, got a bit a uh, bit of movement in the portfolio this week. Um, uh, a bit longer now on natural gas position on the ten year notes turned around. This is now short. A bit longer on the equities bit more short on the pound. Um, and those have all been good markets uh, yeah. for us to trade. Well, I mean, I guess the interest rates are hooving around some interesting levels uh, at the moment, uh, certainly from an historic perspective. And I saw a few headlines during the month where people talked about the decisive break of, of the yield to the upside. So, uh, and clearly, uh, certainly we on our side have been benefiting from the short side on, on interest rates as well, as you just said. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I mean, we're not quite quite as high as you are, Moritz, but uh, done pretty well this uh, this month as well. So it's nice to to put another black number on, on the board, uh, even though, um, you know, people still complain about this being a difficult year. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we had one difficult month uh, this year and the rest has been um, pretty pretty standard for for trend followers what about you uh, jerry 10-year notes interest rates in the u.s is that a focus area for you oh definitely i watching those rates and seeing what's happening and seeing the downtrend sort of continue we held uh, some positions and some solidly profit and some we um held held through the small loss and didn't have to get out so i like um, those markets, and uh, but I do think that um, historically, I have traded them maybe a little too large, and I think I'm going to reduce my exposure uh, because they are so correlated with each other. I think there's more diversification to be found in the stocks and the commodities in particular. So um, I what's, don't know if see. I was just going to say, what what has been your general sort of a allocation to to fixed income in, in on your side around 25 percent okay and uh, okay i think we're just exploring um can we basically get a better more diversified portfolio by lowering that a little bit uh, there is yeah. some differences there but you know they're all pretty coordinated these days uh it's interesting to see maybe we'll see uh the jgb come back. <laughs> I've been reading articles that it's sort of dead. It trades every other day or once yeah. a week. And, um, but it had a break recently and maybe it's still on our list and we're going to take those trades and if the liquidity gets back in there. So maybe we'll it, actually get a downtrend in the JGB. That's would be pretty unique. You know, it, it, I think that's an interesting area, right? Because we talk about the discipline, we talk about, you know, being systematic, you know, you have to follow your system 100% and all that. And, you know, JGBs is a perfect example, right? Because how many times over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, would systems like read run, uh, you know, that we run, not have tried to to go short? I mean, there's probably been quite a few times, and it's always been with a with a bad outcome. And then, as you say, you know, at some point we're going to get that break, and it could be a tremendous trend to the downside. But it's the discipline of keep doing it. And I think again, we talk a lot about the diversification benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And but when you have just JGBs, for example, as one of many, many markets, and it's not really sort of a 
you know, a, a big strategy, if you, you lose uh, even 10 or 20 times in a row, um, I think a lot of people miss that. And they end up with two concentrated portfolios. So when they do take a, a loss in a, in, a, in a market, maybe 10 times in a row, they think there's something wrong with the market and they stop doing it right before you get the next big move. Do you trade JDBs, uh, Moritz? Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, we've been on the long side and then we had that breakdown um, a couple of weeks back and uh, it's now a, uh, a short position. Sure. Not very large though, but it's yeah. short. I think, you know, we, we would like to um, <clears throat> make money and be in the right positions and uh, only be in the the trend the ones that are trending the best. <laughs> but it's really only in hindsight that you know that. And so I think it's perfectly appropriate to build your portfolio from the ground up using uh, the correlations and the liquidity and the mm. most diverse portfolio you can. And then you look up and you're only short basically the U.S., and Australia is sitting there, JGB is not doing anything. The Europe is not really in a big downtrend. You're like, golly, why can't I figure out I should only be in the U.S.? But then when it rallies against you, you're like, oh, yeah, thank you. That's why I have diversification. So we tend to second guess ourselves uh, after the fact. But I remember in the late 90s when the only index moving was the NASDAQ, and I just had a project to figure out how do I – come up with a rule that makes sure that I'm only in NASDAQ, you know, if it's or in the strongest market and it's just impractical and not something you can do. So it's, it's fine not, you know, to have some powder on the sidelines waiting for Australia, Europe, and uh, Aussie and Japan to show the downtrend as well and just sit with your U.S. Um, short interest rates. That's totally fine. Yeah. I mean, with interest rates, I agree with you that, you know, for, for many years they have, it's been a very correlated sector. Um, although I would say nowadays where you clearly have three different, um, you know, um, goals for the three major central banks, um, you know, clearly the U.S. has always been very concerned about unemployment, Europe, it's inflation and Japan, they just want to get something going over there, I guess, both on, on, on both fronts. So, so they have very, you know, divergent uh, policies, I would say at the moment. So, Maybe we could see also even within fixed income uh, on a global basis uh, a bit more divergence and less correlation concentration as we've seen, uh, which would be good generally for, for, for the portfolio. But clearly you're also looking to maybe allocate something you know, away from the fixed income sector, it sounds like, Jerry. The correlations are very tricky. Um, the I remember over the years in 1990, and um, 1980, um, sorry, 1984, 1990, heating oil doubled in price and crude kind of sat there. And they're really highly correlated markets. Um, 1987, silver doubled or tripled and mm -hmm. gold kind of went up a few bucks. And so it's really difficult to navigate. Uh, you don't want to, they're different markets. You, sh you should trade both, uh, but they are sort of correlated. But then you can, uh, you know, th what trend following does is it, takes advantage of things that have never happened before and are yeah. unlikely to happen. So you don't want to ratchet down the position so small that you don't pick up, um, you know, some profit when crazy things like heating oil doubling because the New York Harbor is frozen <laughs> and of course it doesn't impact crude at all. So it's a puzzle uh, and yeah. we get paid for solving or trying to solve these puzzles. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think also in I agree. It's also one of the reasons why you'd be trading Brent and WTI at the same time. Indeed. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of another conversation that I've had uh, recently with some um, uh, investors. Um, and, you know, on the general point about diversification, I, I heard you earlier this week, uh, Jerry, on another podcast, uh, also talking a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, the difficulty for people to embrace what we do enough to really make a meaningful impact on their portfolio when it comes to, um, you know, diversification, really. But I think to some extent, and I, I saw this in the newspaper in Ireland um, uh, the week before last, about how they had become so cautious um, that they were almost afraid to take risk. And, and it kind of, you know, resembled a little bit the question about, I mean, are we getting too overly diversified as investors, because we don't want to take any kind of risk 
anymore. Um, but of course, it's not kind of it's not really the diversification you the three of us are talking about because we talk about truly uncorrelated markets. While I think a lot of investors think that if they buy a hundred different stocks, they are diversified, which we would probably argue they are to some degree, but not to the same degree as including you know commodities and and all the other wonderful markets that we trade. But it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting conversation um, that seems to to. Um, come up from time to time on my travels at least what else are you what are you seeing for at the moment if we're talking about do you want to go into more about this uh, jerry about um you know um the fixed income side or anything else you want to bring up well i um enjoyed a uh, one of your other podcasts um, with art bell Oh yeah, and I saw a quote on your LinkedIn page today, and I okay. was uh, thought it was worth discussing. Yeah, and um, uh, here's a guy who um, is the accountant for the CTA industry for 30 years, and very experienced and knowledgeable, uh, smart person. And his quote is: "I would only suggest managed futures for a larger portfolio because you don't want to put all of your money into futures." And mm-hmm. I th- and I said, what a sad, what a sad <laughs> statement that is. <laughs> and he has the experience and the knowledge, you know, to back it up. I don't know what his uh, specific comments would be to expand on that, but I thought it was just a very sad state for, of the CTA industry that this would be somewhat true from, uh, you know, from his point of view. And I don't doubt that um, there's merit. Um, how do we as a CTAs have all the markets possible at our disposal? Um, we have this great systems, the trend uh, to manage um, these uh, markets in a conservative, risk-adjusted, risk-controlled way and also deliver up you know, good, good performance. And we are telling everyone and always have pretty much, you know, no one will expect you to allow us to manage very much of your portfolio. And I think um, this would be something I think that probably we should think about changing over time. Um, I certainly think that over the years, due to the high cost of some of our funds or the high fees, um, high leverage, um, and then frankly, not having enough single stocks, it's perfectly reasonable that this is the way clients have felt. Um, we've been turning them off and uh, for these reasons and others probably that been trying to get 5 or 10% when to really impact people's portfolio and to deliver some sort of uh, alpha during, during tough periods. We would, you know, we should be managing more and, you know, more stocks because that's kind of what people like and, expect their portfolio to look like. And I think, um, you know, Abbey Capital is doing some of that with their new fund. Milburn has had some stock exposure long only in their fund for a while. It's been very successful. And maybe the next step is um, a portfolio that created by CTAs with lots of good stocks and longs and shorts and trend following. And then, you know, maybe some few, a few currencies and commodities as well and interest rates. So, I just think that that was a shocking statement that hopefully in the next 30 or 40 years, we can we can do better and uh, maybe have another fund or product that people would want to buy and sort of meet people's needs better than we have over the past 30 years. What are your thoughts, Moritz? I'm not sure why he said that. Um, I was just thinking while listening to you guys, you know, there, there have been those, uh, you know, Refco, MF Global, Peregrine, you know, about the safety of clear transactions, including futures transactions. And uh, maybe you've read that, I think it was last week, or maybe it's now two weeks ago, um, there's been another incident over here in Europe, actually, um, on, I think, NASDAQ OMX or, or NASDAQ Nordic, where they had a large trader trading Nordic power contracts, power futures. And I think it resulted in a 100 million euro or dollar, I don't know, 100 million loss for the clearinghouse. Um, I was kind of like surprised by that. It was like, how, 
how is that still possible in this day and age? See what I mean? I, you know, I would have thought that really with all the technology that's in place, um, monitoring clear transactions, the margin processes, you know, for some of the firms being real time, um, how can something like that happen? I was kind of like disappointed that it happened. And I was, you know, guessing that, okay, maybe on the back of that, you'll have some news come up saying, well, you know, don't put too much money into those type of managers. They're trading futures and uh, your funds may be gone because the clearinghouse breaks down. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if you read about that or if you want to comment on that. I just found that interesting that it happened. Well, again. I mean, I think that's, a, I don't know all the details and clearly, you know, I'm not an expert in that field, but I, I do think that you are referring to a Norwegian energy trader who were trading some, you know, spreads right. between Norwegian electricity and and uh, German electricity. And from what I understand, uh, I think the breakdown really uh, starts from the fact that I think he was clearing his old trades. So, which is a which is a weird concept um, because it kind of goes against what we're trying to promote with futures. And 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 this, I think. I think we should be clear that this was not futures contracts that he was trading, as far as I'm aware. So, um, but I mean, you know, these things are never helpful. And and uh, and again, I mean, we have an industry which has proven to be able to navigate these markets from all sides, including regulation and, and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, um, uh, so hopefully people will still uh, look at our industry and say, well, you know, I would rather be over here because... It's proven to to work, um, while you know other markets, maybe more exotic markets, uh, uh, where you don't have the same kind of uh, history or maybe even the same infrastructure when it comes to the the clearing side. Um, you know that that's where there's still accidents uh, that happens. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I th I agree with you, Jerry. In general, from what you were saying before, I mean, I think it is. I I wonder. I mean, is it just because we talk about our industry the way we do? I mean, is it what we call ourselves on managed futures, trend followers? Or, I mean, I know trend following is a good word because that's what we do. But I, I'm sure you remember that there were times when when people were kind of changing the narrative around what they were doing. Certainly in the 90s, when when there weren't when when CTAs weren't we weren't doing so well back in '94 and people were more well maybe we should call ourselves a hedge fund and then they were talking about that and and then they went back to to the term CTA and uh, and um, I wonder I mean what what if we were just talking about what we do as a long short portfolio um, you know long short equity seems to be pretty popular and and maybe we're just long short futures I I, I but I agree with Jerry I mean. What we do should be applied to a much larger part of the portfolio, and we shouldn't be fighting over can we get into a five percent allocation, and then people expect us to do any meaningful, uh, you know, protection uh, or non-correlation uh, for the ninety-five percent. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, really. Um, and this is, goes back to this point about you know, are people over diversifying to some extent since they're only willing to put 5% allocation in, in this space. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts? A lot of thoughts. <clears throat> One of the things that um, I find is that uh, in our mutual fund, we are used by other RIAs who are trend following the equities and bonds you know, for their clients. They allocate 5 or 10% to Chesapeake for the alt piece which is silly, you know, I mean, uh, here I am stuck with five or 10% and these young guys starting up a business, they, you know, trend following is good. It's accessible. It's a way to get your hands around the risk and uh, keep clients from losing too much money. And so they are managing 90% of the assets with a trend following methodology, you know, equities long only probably uh, and uh, cash ETFs or whatever. And then allocating to the, trend following expert five or 10%. So how do we get in this situation? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it, somebody uh, in their late eighties came up with an idea of the efficient portfolio by saying, um, here's what happens when you add five or 10% of CTAs to the bonds and stock portfolio. And it, you create this efficient frontier. And then we just haven't stopped saying that 
regardless of how it hasn't worked. Yeah. And no one said, well, what if we trend followed the stocks and the bonds and added crisis alpha there? Mm. And then we threw in a few currencies and commodities as well for more diversification. Is that something that would even be better? Um, it's an irrational desire to have 80% stocks in your portfolio. I get it. But it's also kind of not that smart to refuse to play along, at least with one of your programs or funds. You say, okay, if that's what you guys want, I'll do the best I can with that. But to give me this dysfunctional portfolio of passive longs in the stock market that is going to usually be about an 8% average return and a possible 50% drawdown, and then say, here's 5 or 10% of your, uh, for your program, can you provide crisis alpha? It, that makes no sense to anyone. No, no. But may, maybe it's just this human bias that nobody wants to be, you know, failing uh, unconventionally. They would rather fail conventionally. And so if everyone else is down that month, well, then it's okay. Um, but, um, I mean, it is sad um, because a lot of these people are, are pretty smart people. But it does remind me actually about a conversation I had with a group I think three of these sort of the, the larger U.S. Uh, consultants uh, last year, and um, I think it was Adam uh, Duncan who said, you know, when we go in and if we explain to clients who are predominantly equity-based what we believe the true allocation to trend following should be, you know, there's no chance that they're going to go for that number because they actually know and, and the cult, uh, consultants from all their analysis show that it needs to be a much bigger allocation than the five or the ten percent, but they just won't get through with that. Anything on your side? Um, any thoughts, Moritz, on your side? I just agree with that. I mean, I I hear people say that they have five percent allocated to trend following programs, and it's hard to imagine how that is moving the needle in any way on a larger portfolio. So, I you know kind of like at a loss as to where those 5% come from. And I agree that, you know, if you really want to get the benefits from an allocation that it, you know, must be larger than at least 20% to even uh, get, get the positive impact on the portfolio that we want. And that has nothing to do with, you know, crisis alpha, whatever that crisis alpha thing is. I'm not sure um, what, what it is as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I I don't I don't connect trend following CTAs with crisis alpha in any way. They're at least not the way that that I trade or I think that we trade. Just because of the fact that we're not trading those fast short term systems, um, which which I also don't want to trade because well I haven't found a way to really trade them in a profitable way. So it's just no way for me to um, provide that crisis protection that that hedge. Uh, with the way that I trade, the the only thing that I can offer is, um, uh, yeah, the, the the pain and the drawdown, and and follow the system and do the long the, the right thing in the long term. But I I don't have a crisis hedge in in any shape or form, and I don't think you get it with you don't get that with a twenty percent allocation to CTAs. Definitely don't get it with a five percent allocation. No, I mean I think but, it's up to people like us uh, and and hopefully others to change the narrative. I I I, th- I really think, as Jerry was saying, it's a narrative that started you know thirty forty years ago and it just hasn't changed. Yeah, it used to be, um, we uh, you would see in materials here are the S and P's five biggest drawdowns, and then here's how CTAs performed during that period. Well, you know. It sort of changed to, well, on February the 5th, 2018, how did you? How could you possibly lose money? Why do I own you if right. you lost money as well? Not only did we lose money in stocks, we lost maybe even more, you know, percentage-wise in currencies and commodities, let's say. So yeah. that's right. It's, it's the optimal portfolio. I, our friend um, Mike Dever sent out an email Okay. Six months ago, and the title of the email was uh, CTA is the perfect hedge. And I mm-hmm. wrote back, um, Mike, the perfect hedge or the perfect portfolio? And he was like, oh, I'm so mad that I was so wimpy. And I, I'm, that's the truth. It's the perfect portfolio. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the best we can do with longs, insurance, currencies, commodities, interest rates, uh, tremendous diversification and risk control. So, yeah, it's really the perfect portfolio. But you're out there saying that when the industry and other people are saying you're going to blow our five or ten percent if you don't. It's going to be zero percent if you try to strike out and do something that's actually the, the honest truth. Uh, yeah. I went to a something called the Evidence-Based Investing Conference in New York last year. And uh, as if all the rest of us are not evidence-based, it's kind of a little insulting uh, term that has sprouted up amongst the passive people. And Meb Faber got up on the, Meb Faber got up on the stage. He's sympathetic and a trend follower, true trend following, and a sort of a trend follower, I think. And he got up on stage, and they talked about this allocation uh, between um, traditional assets and CTAs. And he basically said, "Yeah, my analysis is that, that CTAs should be fifty percent of the allocation." <clears throat> and um, can you imagine if if you were running the evidence based investing conference that right then you would have to stand up and say, "Stop right here! I've got to, this is an incredible thing. It's either not true." Or it's the most incredible thing I've ever heard, and uh, that you're, you're telling all of us we should have fifty percent of our assets in um, in CTAs. And uh, of course, no one said a word; it just passed on, and uh, it was just left. And so uh, that's that's another way that that's another way that things uh, sort of play out. Is um, these things are never denounced as not being true; they're just right. ignored. Yeah. No, it's the same uh, thing about, you know, generally with, with white papers. I mean, there's never been a white paper to to basically uh, refute uh, what Lindner came up with all those years ago. I mean, so, but still people choose um, to, to ignore it, um, which is which is interesting. So we'll keep fighting for the 5%, but maybe one day we'll get to 6, 7, 8, no, even 10. Who knows? Um any interesting news before we get to your top tweet, which from now on will be the top tweet? We could talk about why that why that is in fact going to be the case. Um, but any other news that uh, you guys came across? Nothing that interesting really this week, I must admit. Anything on your side? Or should we just jump to your, to your tweets, Jerry, which are always interesting and... Uh, we can debate them a bit. Yes, I am um, very interested in being aware of what's on people's minds and Twitter and the Twitter universe, and yeah. uh, try to interpret it from a trend, a systematic point of view, um, and how I see it and how it relates. Um, the long-awaited, uh, anticipated Howard Marks memos. Um, people seem to love these things, as do I, and one of them came out this week. And he's a fundamental value manager, I guess. And then it's just amazing how over the years I have just uh, really found a lot of in common. <clears throat> I don't think he likes systems or trend necessarily, but his uh, worldview on investing, I you know find that I have a tendency to agree with it sometimes. And um, so I looked up on my Twitter, and I can uh, find a list of the tweets that I have posted that other people liked <laughs> the most. Uh, maybe not mine. I can never predict these things. It's hard to understand um, some of the things I think are amazing. Um, my sometimes my pinned tweets get you know five or ten likes over a six month period, and I just think it's the greatest thing ever. But this one was number one, uh, Howard Marks, and I pulled out the quote, um, investors should favor strategies and managers that emphasize limiting losses and declines above ensuring full participation in gains. You simply can't have it both ways. And so wow. a lot of trend followers, or people who are interested in like trend following do follow me. I can definitely tell. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting quote. It's something we do 24-7 um, every day of the year. We are, that's what we say. That's essentially what we're doing. We're 
putting uh, diversification, liquidity, stop losses, uh, risk as a paramount idea in our trading and our systems and hoping, you know, that this is not going to prevent us from participating in some long-term trends. Um, and we, it's just a given. We're not going to uh, sacrifice or compromise um, with taking on uh, the type of risk that one would take maybe with buy and hold or no stop losses or no, no trailing stops. But I did sort of pick up in this um, probably a little bit of counter trend thinking mm-hmm. that I try to discourage, which is uh, CTAs and trend followers in general should embrace um, stock market uptrends. And um, everyone seems to be very um, aware that stocks are going to sell off and sell off soon. And when they want to you know, make sure every, they teach everyone a lesson and be on record as saying, hey, you know, I kept telling you guys that the stocks were going to go down. And of course, most people have been saying that for a number of years now. So I don't think it's a good idea to, uh, I don't think there would be that much interest in a, um, you know, the, the energy markets, for instance, that there are markets, that's, that's our claim to fame, the commodities. And, but in the same way, we should uh, be sort of a trend follower and not um, bad mouth, really nice stock uptrends. And do you think so? So, I mean, I, I, I agree, but I also think it's, Again, these uh, human biases that we also as trend followers to to some degree, uh, at least in our communication, because clearly there seems to be a um, a, a correlation with equity market uh, troubles and then usually six months later, lots of inflow to CTA. So, so I can understand why CTAs think it's great when equity goes down because that used to or that, that normally means that they can go out and raise more money. So, but I completely agree with you. Why? Why would we be biased to, uh, towards um, an equity sell-off? Um, because actually, um, you know, the last couple of years, as an example, shows that uh, we, as as an industry, um, can really take advantage and deliver very strong returns from uh, from that sector in particular. Um, but you know, again, it's, it's just one sector, and it doesn't work all the time. So we should have no bias. I mean, we should be, we should love all the markets we trade uh, for good and for bad. Yeah, and I don't think like did, did he say you can have it both ways? I'm not sure if I understood that correctly. Like you know, limit. So when you limit to lo- your losses, then you also have to limit your upside. Is is that what he said? I think he's saying. Be diversified, especially now, and don't worry about not fully participating in the S&P gains from here on. Mm. And that's what we do 24-7. We, yeah. we don't just invest in the S&P. We invest in all of these different markets, long and short. And we certainly believe that we, we're not making a performance compromise. We think that all of these trades have the same potential profit whether it's stocks or bonds or currencies or commodities. Exactly. Uh, even though it doesn't look like it uh, <clears throat> over a long period of time, they all make the same amount of money. Uh, certainly in my first 10 or 15 years of trading, uh, at least, uh, we made more money uh, than the stock market. So this too will pass, uh, we think, we hope. Um, it does sort of sound like a contradiction because I was just saying earlier, let's trade more stocks. And the reason I say that, I don't think it's optimal to necessarily trade more stocks. I wouldn't advise trading more stocks than the numbers say we should. How much uh, diversification are you getting from your stocks? Then that's going to determine your positions in all the sectors. Um, But no, some people want more stocks. And um, and the the time to prepare for this sell-off and or these issues is not just now, which he's insinuating. Oh, now it's really overvalued. Uh, prices are crazy high. I mean, we start, you know, that's just what we do. It's You should always uh, sacrifice the potential upside in any one market or sector and default to um, more diversification. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. we're in that game of, um, you know, actually trying to get it both ways, right? We're limiting our downside cutting the losses, taking many losses, but in return for that, 
we're hoping to get unlimited upside. Where does the price go? To the moon, maybe. So just uh, stay long for as long as you can. This is, you know, it's not an opinion contest if you just follow that price. Um, you just stay long until the trend changes. So we're looking to to get it both ways. You know, very good upside moves, many small losses, and the the winners pay for the losers. And it's kind of like sometimes that, you know, people just don't want to accept the facts. I mean, you know, take take your track record, Jerry. I mean, I don't know the stats precisely, but it's something like, you know, in 30 years, you've had like four down years. I mean, who wouldn't want that? I mean, it's crazy. And yet we, we, we seem like, you know, whatever we present as facts and numbers and audited track records, it's like, yeah, but, you know, there's always some kind of excuse for why they wouldn't wouldn't want that or take it as 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 um you know a really really strong uh investment case investment strategy um it's 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 interesting um i'm intrigued by by those forces that um that are so so strong in uh, in parts of the investor community i think people are some people are changing and uh, certainly over here in europe i do see um people embracing this um, but it's it's slow. Uh, it definitely is. So, anything else? Any other tweets, Jerry? You want to uh, bring up before we maybe do some Q and A? We've got lots of questions coming in, which is great, by the way. So, if you're out there listening, keep them coming. Send uh, questions to info at toptradersunplugged dot com, and we will do our best to uh, to answer those. But anything else, Jerry? You found interesting in Twitterland? I enjoyed uh, kind of a funny <clears throat> tweet. I uh, retweeted this uh, recently. Uh, was a favorite. Um, uh, more fiction is written in Excel than in Microsoft Word. <laughs> and uh, I think, uh, uh, hopefully, we're coming across as, you know, just the biggest believers and lovers of backtesting and research and uh, systems you know, on the planet, but we're also understanding the limitations and how careful one must be uh, when you, and humble uh, with your numbers. Uh, many times I've left the research meetings over the past 35 years and been so excited and just could not yeah. contain myself that we were going to make these dramatic improvements in performance. Uh, so then, you know, over time you sort of become more mature and understand that um, what you should expect from uh, as wonderful as a, the analysis, the Excel or the trade station or the MATLAB or whatever you're, uh, you've graduated to over the years, uh, it is, we, we, we do know that there is a lot of fiction in, in even our numbers. And so we've been chastised appropriately over the years to have a more reasonable expectation. I think that's a great. I mean, I, I think we could do a whole episode on on that topic. I think that's a a very very interesting topic, and also something that somewhat frustrates me from time to time because I see so many newsletters being sold where you once you read the small print, it's just a backtest that they claim is you know gonna solve all people's problems, and unfortunately, um, you know many many investors. Uh, you know, go for it and spend a lot of money subscribing to these uh, these news newsletters, which are essentially just. And you know, it it it. I'm interested in why that industry is not regulated harder compared to uh, our industry, um, because a lot of claims are being made um, about performance, and and a lot of that performance isn't real. Um, yet it seems to be, you know not falling under the radar of people who um, tend to look at these things. Yeah, I agree. I saw that quote also and uh, I liked it. So we, we have the same taste there. I really love that quote mm. and it is true. And, and also what you're saying, Niels, is true. I mean, you know, sometimes I'm you know, kind of like getting almost angry when I see those fact sheets and they they apply, say, a long-term moving average to just the S&P or an equity index. And then there's a very interesting choice of starting point. And the starting point is like 2007, right? So right before the crisis. 
And then the strategy is you go out of the market in the downtrend and you're invested if the market's in an uptrend. So the thing starts and it's like immediately flatlining while the S&P is like heading down 50, right? And then come 2009, the system gets long again and you're participating in the upside. And maybe in the meantime, you've had three or four maybe changes in, in signals. So sample size is kind of like three, four, something like that, right? So really nothing. And it looks great on paper, but really it's completely meaningless. But it looks yeah. great. It does. It does. Anyways, why don't we um, why don't we take a few questions before we uh, before we uh, end our weekly conversation this week? Are you up for that? Sure. Good. 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 So there's uh, this is from uh, Craig, um, and Craig wrote to us uh, a few days ago. Um, so uh, and there's a few questions here, but I'm just going to do. Uh, one or two of them because there are many other people who wrote in so i want to try and get to uh, a few um he's very he has some very kind words about the new podcast so so thank you for that craig and then he asks um so he actually talks a little bit about um i'm just going to jump into one of them he talks about the greatest concern from legislative and regulatory uh standpoint at present and so we don't talk so much about that, maybe. So maybe we can just give our thoughts about what what we um, worry about. I mean, if I can just kick it off, I mean, I think going back to Arthur Bell's um, comment, um, I mean, I agree with you, Jerry. I mean, one of the things that that is great about what has happened in, in recent years with the 40 Act funds, et cetera, is in fact that now more people can participate in these strategies and they're probably the people who really need it the most. I mean, the the very super high net worth individual uh, and and family offices they know how to navigate, uh, you know, different correlated assets and so on and so forth. Or they they should know. But but the more um, traditional private investor um, benefits greatly from having access for the first time uh, in a long time to some of these strategies. So my concern personally is if we are getting new legislation that will prevent that from continuing to grow even though i picked up something in the news uh, this week or last week and maybe you know about this jerry talking about that in the u.s they were looking to uh, change the accredited investor rules and maybe make it a little bit easier for people to become classified as an accredited investor don't know if you saw any of any of that or have any other thoughts about these things that Craig is asking about? Uh, no, I didn't see that. I saw that they're re they're bringing back the idea of measuring uh, the leverage um, used by mutual funds, and it's going to have a big impact on futures traders and uh, futures traders who trade markets that uh, with low volatility and uh, adjust big the uh, size. Yeah. Yeah, adjust the positions because the vol to a higher level because the vol is yeah. low, yeah. and this could give an impression of high leverage. Um, and this has been, I think, bounced around a couple of times over the years. So maybe um, that's that's uh, something that <clears throat> I'm hoping that the really big funds like AQR <laughs> will just take care of this for me, so I can just move on to other yeah, things. I was just about to say that. Yeah, we're we're. I think we're all all cheering for for them at this point on that point that's for sure anything else that you see in terms of uh, you know when craig asked about concerns and um and anything on your side um moritz that you see uh, over here in europe uh, not that much really and i'm not sure if i'm the right person to ask um um sorry i can't really help there i mean we're <laughs> regulated the way we are and it's uh it's a lot let's leave it yeah. at that well which is another thing uh i think people should appreciate more um because we've always been regulated pretty hard as an industry compared to other strategies anyways uh one more quick question uh and we can make a general uh i think but another one from from craig is just a little bit about where where we spend and i think we should talk about this maybe as as firms rather than individuals because 
maybe it's a little bit misleading since uh, you know it's not a one man band but where we typically spend our time um during a month uh you know trade execution analysis research uh etc 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 um what would you say um what would you say jerry as a as a firm in terms of time spent um time spent um <clears throat> thinking and strategizing and looking at the markets and trying to get some new ideas uh everything is all the trading and execution is um automated 90% of our time is spent 10% of our time uh, is really only spent on we only spend 10% of our time on you know what creates the PNL so we're right. very fortunate in that regard and everything else is regulations and admin lawyers accountants marketing, sales. Uh, but I like to, my main job which is just to um, <clears throat> look at the portfolio from a high level. Are we missing anything? And try to come up with new ideas. Um, I'm, I'm good at new ideas and uh, uh, big picture. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Moritz? Um... I mean, daily processes aren't you know they're automated and, and maybe that's that's a 10 minute task um hitting buttons you know sending out orders producing orders sending out orders that's all automated um getting fields back running reconciliations all of that um uh, you know in today's day and age with technology that's no longer a problem and and really trade breaks uh, there aren't that many so kind of like you know the daily operations there are they're very unexciting, as I think they should be, which leaves a lot of time thinking about new things. So um, interesting areas uh, for me are, you know, looking more into synthetic markets, that is spreads, you know, those type of things, creating, creating markets which maybe other people don't really look at that much, which are less crowded and therefore potentially more interesting to trade and also diversifying within the portfolio. So it's um, it's research. And like Jerry said, coming up with new ideas, thinking about things. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I find it very interesting that you mentioned that more. It's about thinking up new kind of markets or synthetic markets, because I had a very detailed conversation with uh, uh, Held from uh, TransTrend about that, how they, because that's something they embraced many years ago, and uh, where they've evolved uh, that uh, to. Uh, just from, from our point of view, uh, Francois, I would say that as a firm, we probably spend our time equally among sort of four key areas, uh, which is research uh, and also the way we allocate resources in terms of staff. So probably 25% are focused on, on, on doing the research and another 25% are, are focused on, on implementing the trades because you know, as a firm, we we want to have you know twenty four seven staff, uh, you know, for for execution purposes, and we're a little bit old fashioned maybe compared to other people because we we still like to see the trades before they go into the markets. We don't just let the systems go straight into the markets without any uh, human being um, overseeing that. So maybe that takes a little bit more human uh, resources, and then you have your sort of your your business management side uh, slash operations, and then you have, uh, you know, also resources allocated to looking after our clients and making sure that they uh, have and, and get what they need. So that's how we, we do it on our side. So thanks for those uh, questions, Craig. Then um, Francois uh, has some questions for us also. He starts out with um, some very kind words. So thanks for that, Francois. Um, so he, and I think it ties back to a little bit about what um, we sort of touched upon uh, maybe today and, and, and previously. He has one question. He says, how long did it take before you stopped modifying and religiously follow your system? So maybe I'll start with you, Moritz, on this one first and... Uh, Hmm. Oh, what what say you to that question great question <laughs> it is a great question yeah um religiously following the system that is a that's the goal it's like being under oath now you're under oath now exactly so um 
it's been it's been quite a long time for me that I've um, that I've uh, disregarded a signal or trade. So that's that's I think is good news. It's it's good news for me. So uh, so uh, tap myself on the shoulder for that. But I definitely cannot say that it's always been like that. So um, definitely had episodes where I tried to uh, second guess a trade or a signal and and not take it or take it in a different way. And um, you know maybe that maybe ten to twenty percent of the time that was the right decision to do, and eighty percent of the time it's definitely been the, the wrong thing to do. So, um, so getting to the point where kind of like you switch off the brains, stop thinking and just follow the system. I think this sounds, this sounds hard, but, um, that's, uh, that's how it should be. And, um, getting better at that. And like I said, haven't really overwritten a signal in a very, very long time now. Now, as far as sure. not modifying the rules. Um, I definitely cannot say that I've, you know, stopped changing the system. Like, you know, you do new research, you find new things. I mean, at least I think that, you know, I come up with um, some new good ideas and and things that I'd like to try out. And then, you know, I follow them, paper, then I trade small size and eventually, uh, eventually implement it if I, if I believe it's a good thing to do. So, um, so the system is evolving and and the rules don't you know there are some ground rules ground trend following rules that never change but some of the stuff on the edges um you know maybe some new exits um, um those type of things that that continues to change yeah how about you jerry yeah so i wouldn't uh, say that um making tweaks and certain changes, uh, uncovering de deficiencies in your system is not following things religiously. I'd say uh, once you, when you finish making those changes, now start following them religiously. And I think yep. that's the way to do it. Uh, I do think that one should uh, count the cost of frequent changes or changes that may not even seem that frequent. Uh, you can see when you should be zagging. I've definitely... Uh, experienced that, that the old systems would have done better than the new ones, huh. uh, at least over a short period of time. Um, I'm always, um, almost every single change or tweak we've made, I've just walked away thinking, you know, that was available for me to um, uncover many, many years ago. It's not like I researched something and I found it and it's new. No, it's sort of like I didn't fully understand, um, you know, the, how deep and profound some of these ideas can be. And I didn't incorporate them into my approach, but it was staring me in the face. I just needed to figure it out. And a lot of things too, I have not uncovered until later dates because I didn't think it was possible to really fix it. My heart was not into, there is a solution to this. You know, I, if I just keep digging and digging, I have to convince myself look, keep going. There could be a, a solution, a better solution. So, um, but I think that's, uh, I think clients want evolving and change and improvement and please get rid of February of 2018 <laughs> and just doesn't work like that. There are huge uh, changes in cost to cost of changing. And, uh, but I really like the idea. And, and this is the thing that I think our firm has We've been very slow over the years because we there was the top ten trend following commandments that we just refused to break, and the the tried and true classic trend following uh, we just wouldn't even explore it. And so I think that is important too. What what are the uh, the givens that you're not ever going to, you know, counter trend trades, profit objectives, uh, trading markets, different systems or longs and shorts, trading those with different systems. These are things that um, when you write them down and you say, you know, these are the, what I really believe in, then it really limits uh, your tweaking and research. Yeah. Yeah, no, I tend to say um, when asked, I think that, you know, investors, they do want you to evolve, but they don't want you to change. And that is a that is a balance that we have to uh, deal with. Um 
but uh, I would say from the history, since I don't work on the research side, so I can't um, talk about the same things uh, as, as as Jerry and, and Moritz did, but I can talk about you know the firm, um, uh, you know, and and how it was when when Bill Dunn started, and and it was very similar to what Jerry said. I mean, there are just uh, a lot of things that you, you couldn't you couldn't do um, if you were a true trend follower, and I think that 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 is what uh, what Dunn has always uh, stood for, and in fact, in terms of major changes. Um, no real major chains were made uh, from 74 when the company started to around 2006. Um, so, so a pretty long period of time. On the other hand, um, since then, we've made, you know, three or four uh, major changes uh, to improve the system. And uh, as long as we can find those things, because people have to realize every time you make a change, you have the chance of getting it wrong. So, so change in itself is not what you should uh, strive for um so um yeah but i do see i mean i do see people who who make changes all the time and i've all, all often wondered i mean how the hell do the clients uh figure out what they bought if every quarter you get a message saying well we found this new thing and we're gonna put that into the portfolio i mean that that makes it very difficult Anyways, let's uh, move on. We're already almost at the hour mark, which is uh, which is great because we've got a lot to, to share and talk about. Um, so, but uh, maybe one more question from from Francois uh, for this week. Um, he says, "Could you please touch on the pros and cons of using futures versus ETF?" Brackets, liquidity, markets, fees, margins. Maybe just a short comment uh, from from you guys. Um, any any quick thoughts on pros and cons, futures versus ETFs? Well, it depends. Maybe I just start. Uh, well, in my opinion, <laughs> <laughs> now I get both 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 yeah. thoughts at the same time. Let's do. Uh, let's come to you first, Morris. Yeah, I think we touched on that already in another episode. Um, you know, some brokers allow you to trade one thing and not the other. Um, most of us have started with futures, so you know they have implicit leverage. They're very efficient to trade the market that we trade. They are liquid, um, so no or very little market impact. Um, now the ETFs have fees. There's a total expense ratio that you pay for trading them. So if you hold them for longer periods of time, there's a cost associated with that. Um, commissions are different um, uh, for cash equities trading or ETF trading as opposed to futures. Um, but of course, I mean, there there could be benefits to trading ETFs to get exposure to, say, sectors or, you know, more specific areas of the market, if, if that is what you're what you're after and what you're looking for. Yeah. Any thoughts, Jerry? I agree with all of that. And I'll just concentrate on a slightly different angle. I it could be possible that there's an ETF out there that is not not in, not a futures market um, possible, but I would just say, from my point of view, extreme an extremist point of view, uh, that it's always better to trade the individual market than a basket, an ETF, an index. It seems to me that applying the trend following systems, long and short, sizing the positions uh, based upon a particular market's volatility, uh, following the prices and those signals of each individual market and, and uh, what, what, how each individual market is working um, is much better, more diversification. Uh, some of the things in the ETF, you may want to be short, long, flat, whatever. So there's no reason that, uh, that I can think of that it would not be superior over a long period of time to trade the components inside the ETF instead of the ETF itself. Agree with that fully. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that completely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we got more questions, but we won't take them today. But I can say that we had a great question from Dave uh, coming in, which relates to uh, some of the turtle stuff. So I'm sure Jerry will have some very interesting uh, thoughts on that. But let's keep that for another day. Quick update, really, on uh, on the industry. I mean, we're actually recording this uh, 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 on a Friday evening, 
um, because of some travel uh, issues on my side tomorrow. So, uh, so the numbers I have uh, for the for September so far is actually um, so at the end of uh, yesterday Thursday, and it looks like uh, not too much changed in the industry. Although I think that um, you know, as Moritz said. Uh, you know they had a good month we looks it looks like we're having a good month so but the industry actually looks like it's down a bit about about a percent for the uh, sock gen cta index still down just shy of four for the year and the b top 50 index seems to be flat for the month uh, at, at least at the end of thursday and um, down uh, almost three for the year but not too bad um anything else guys that you want to bring up uh before we wrap up for for, for this week all good here. Nothing more. Yeah, that's it. That's it. All righty. Well, on that note, we will wrap up this week's conversation. We hope you've enjoyed it just as much as we enjoy making them for you. And if you did, please share and please leave a rating and review. It really does help us grow the audience. So from Jerry Morris and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.